Well, amen. Thank you, choir and band and orchestra. You brought a Bible, say amen. And uh, let me invite you to open it to Luke's Gospel, chapter 11 this morning. Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. If you're visiting with us, we've been going verse by verse through this Gospel. And this morning, we find ourselves in verses 1 through 4 on a subject series entitled Upgrade. And what we're doing is we're placing our prayer life under a microscope, and we're identifying how well we are doing at spending time alone with the Lord. Now, just like the disciples, I think, after we see the life of Jesus and his prayer, that you and I would have the same desire, and that would be that we would receive an upgrade to our prayer life. And the Lord's really been challenging me and helping me out in my own prayer life, so I'm excited to be able to share this with you this morning. So Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Let's stand to our feet uh, while we get prepared for God to speak to our heart. Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. And listen, I know uh, we're real close to Christmas, so I want to say Merry Christmas. And then secondly, I want to say I'm fixing to preach. Y'all all right? So uh, I know y'all are thinking about Christmas and what you're going to get and uh, what you're going to give. But right now, put that mess out of your mind. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to give a present to the Lord Jesus this morning. You don't know, you don't know what it is? Do you want to know what it is? I want you to give your mind and your heart to the Lord this morning, all right? So don't allow yourself to drift and wander and think about everything you got going on this week. Let's give ourselves over to the Lord today. And you know, the Bible says that we are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. So as we give the Lord our mind, we're asking Him to speak to us. And then what He does is by the Spirit of God, He takes what we are receiving in our minds and helps work it down into our hearts. And so that's what we want to do this morning. We give ourselves to the Lord as a gift and let him speak to you. Sound good? All right, Luke 11, beginning in verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, uh, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And this is what we'll focus on this morning, verse 4. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Let's bow together. Father, this is your word, and so thankful that I don't have to make up stuff to talk about on Sunday mornings. And, but God, you have delivered scripture to us, and Lord, it's just such a joy to be able to expound and share what the scripture teaches. So help us, God, this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit to learn what you desire, that our prayer lives might be deepened, that we might grow in our walk with you. And pray for every person here present. There are some who are present, who do not know you personally. God, they don't have a relationship with you. So I pray before they leave today that they would be saved, they'd be forgiven of their sin, they'd come into harmony with you, into a relationship with you, and their life would be changed. And then, God, there are also those who do know you, but for whatever reason, they're walking a guilty distance. Use the Word of God this morning to draw them back to yourself so that they might experience you fully and that you might gain all of the glory in their hearts and lives. And God, this morning, again, I pray for strength to deliver the message and for your word to be exalted, your son to be lifted up, trusting that you will draw people to yourself. God, praying in the name of Christ that the enemy would not have a foothold, but the Holy Spirit would work freely in the hearts of every individual. And that's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. And everybody said, amen. Well, there's five attitudes that we should have in prayer. We learned that from the model prayer, from the life of Jesus, and already begun to outline those attitudes for you and have already preached on the first four, but let me very quickly just run over them again. As the model prayer begins, Jesus says we ought to pray like this. We ought to pray, Father. When we speak of Father, it speaks of relational openness. It's an attitude whereby you and I 
go before God with absolute transparency and we talk openly to him about what's going on inside of our hearts and also what's going on around us. And then we move to the second attitude in prayer and that is unsurpassed reverence. That comes from the phrase, hallowed be your name. This is an attitude which leads you and I to exalt the reputation of God in each of our prayers. And then also we find where Jesus says, this is how you should pray next, your kingdom come. This reminds you and I that we should have the attitude of willful surrender to the Lord Jesus. So whenever we're praying, we're asking for his kingdom to come and that he would reign supreme in our hearts and then also that he would very soon come and have complete dominion upon the earth. And by the way, there is a promise where Jesus says he is coming again. Can I get a witness on that one? And he came the first time and he said he was coming the first time, right? And now he's coming again, so I'm pretty fired up about that. And then Jesus says, pray like this, Give us each day our daily bread. We looked at that last week. It magnifies an attitude of humble dependence, an attitude that fully trusts in the Father's care for daily needs. Now, we come to the next attitude. It's the attitude of holy desire. So when you and I pray, we should have the attitude of holy desire. So let me give it to you in a sentence, and then I'll preach on it. i got a lot to say this morning, and Lord willing, we'll get it all finished. But here's the idea in a sentence. This speaks of an attitude that pursues purity before God, forgiveness toward men, and protection from temptation. That is holy desire in a sentence. So just kind of imagine it like this. Let's say that someone could actually uh, listen in to your private prayer life with God. So you're in your prayer closet or wherever you spend time praying and speaking to God, and they come by and they listen in to your prayer. Question, by listening to your prayer, would they go away saying, that man or that woman has a genuine desire to live a holy life? Could they hear that attitude actually reflected in your prayer life? You know, as we continue to examine this and look at this attitude of holy desire, we need to ask, well, how would I know? I mean, how can I be sure that I have a holy desire whenever I'm praying? So three ways. Let me give them to you very quickly this morning. First of all, you know you have a holy desire in prayer if you are pursuing purity before God. Purity before God. Look in your Bible again at verse 4. The Scripture says, and forgive us our sins. Now, notice the word forgive. It means to let go. It means to send away. And then the next word that stands out is the word sins. Can everybody say sin this morning? Sin, right? And the word sin literally means to miss the mark. It gives the imagery of somebody who's shooting a bow and arrow, and they actually miss the bullseye. So they are off the mark of perfection. That's what sin is. The bullseye is perfection, but all of us are missing the mark. So in our prayer, Jesus is actually encouraging you and I to keep short accounts with God the Father. We are asking the Lord to let go of those areas in our life where we have missed the mark and we have committed some sin in either our thoughts, our words, or our deeds. So we come before God and Jesus says, pray like this, forgive us of our sins. Now, when I was studying this, I sat back and said, wait just a minute, all right? Can everybody say, wait just a minute? I'm just making sure y'all with me. Wait a minute, all right? The question that I began to think of, and really the thought that came to mind, is that if you have turned from your sin and placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Bible teaches that all of our sin, past, present, and future, has already been dealt with by the Lord. Uh, question, 
Didn't Jesus die for our sins to cancel out the debt we owed to God? The answer is yes. Didn't Jesus die as our substitute for sin and forgive us completely? The answer is yes, of course he did. However, that describes our position in the Lord Jesus Christ. You gotta listen closely. For those of us who are in Christ, we are forgiven completely of sin's penalty, which was death, and granted righteousness by God as a free gift unto salvation. So for those of us who know the Lord Jesus personally, the penalty of death has been absolutely erased in our life. Now, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, then the Bible teaches you're still a child of God's wrath. And the wrath of God is coming for you, man. So you need to come to faith in Jesus so that you can be forgiven, so that you can have the debt totally taken off of your spiritual bank account. And nothing whatsoever can change our position in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a declaration of Almighty God from heaven, from his courtroom, that you and I are righteous when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, from a practical standpoint, although you and I have been forgiven of sin's debt, which was death, all of us still sin. Let me ask you a question. Do you still sin? Y'all proud of it over here, ain't you? Do y'all still sin over here? Uh, how many of you sin a lot? Golly, y'all just seen who would raise their hand. So from a practical, listen, positionally, we are in Christ. The loom of death and hell over our life has been removed because we placed our faith in Jesus. God has declared us righteous. However, as a believer, sin grieves the Spirit of God within us and causes us to forfeit our fellowship with the Lord. See, our salvation in Christ is a legal declaration from God that cannot change. However, our fellowship with God is an ongoing process that we must tend to so that nothing whatsoever hinders it. Now, I remember moving into a uh, new home when I was a teenager growing up, and, um, which is only a couple of years ago. But anyway, I moved in with my parents, and I had my own bathroom for the first time. I was fired up about it. So I went in there, and I was going to brush my teeth when I noticed that the water didn't go down the drain properly. Instead, all the water just kind of began to gather up in the sink and it looked pretty nasty. And so eventually I was curious, you know, why is the water not going down the drain? So I reached down and grabbed hold of the sink stopper and started pulling it up. Uh, the only problem is that the sink stopper would not come up easily. When I was, uh, you know, this age, I wasn't near as big as I am uh, today. So it was more difficult to get it up. <laughs> That was a funny joke, and y'all just missed it. But anyway, so, uh, so 75 pounds, man. I'm pulling as hard as I can to get that stopper out. And finally, it jarred loose, and I discovered hanging on the end of the stopper was a huge, massive clump of hair. Yeah, that's pretty gross. And then I thought and remembered that the previous owners of the house actually had two huge, massive house dogs. I saw them one time, and they were huge, hairy, golden retrievers. And they loved their dogs too, like, uh, like people shouldn't. So they loved their dogs in a unique fashion. And these dogs actually had their own bathroom and the bathroom was now my bathroom. And that's not of the Lord. But anyway, so they had clogged this whole thing up and was keeping the water from actually flowing down the sink. Now think about it. This is what happens in our walks with the Lord. As soon as we come into a relationship with the Lord, God turns on the faucet of fellowship into our lives. He wants us to walk with Him and talk with Him, living in harmony with Him every single day, every single moment. 
However, when we sin, we are clogging up the drain of our fellowship with him. The free-flowing fellowship of God is hindered when we allow sin to live in our lives. So what are we to do? Well, Jesus says we ought to pray and forgive us our sins. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the idea of confessing our sin speaks of admitting and declaring through prayer before God that we have wronged him in either our thoughts, our words, or our deeds. That is, something we have thought, something we have said, something we have done actually contradicts the character and nature of God the Father. And we admit it before him, and we declare it in prayer before God pursuing purity. And then the Lord, listen, by his grace, dismisses the sin and keeps it from hindering the flow of its fellowship in our lives. So we walk with the Lord. Now, this is huge. You and I are called to walk in harmony with Christ. That which throws us out of harmony with the Lord is sin. So my question to you this morning is quite simply, are you walking in harmony with the Lord? See, when you and I choose to sin, instead of obey God, we are in effect saying that the immediate gratification of the sin is greater to us than the satisfaction of unhindered fellowship with the Lord. Did y'all hear this? Are y'all listening? Let me say it to you again because I don't think half of y'all are listening. Pay attention. When you and I choose to sin, instead of obey God, we are in effect saying that the immediate gratification of the sin is greater to us than the satisfaction of unhindered fellowship with God. You know what this is? It is idolatry. It's interesting, isn't it? A time when we magnify personal gratification above our need for fellowship with the Lord. One author says it this way, quote, we must purge ourselves of anything that blocks our fellowship with Almighty God. This is the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 139, 23 through 24, where he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So what does our prayer life look like? Well, we sit down before God and just like the psalmist, we are pursuing holiness with the Lord. And it's awesome, as I study this prayer, you find that there is a greater level of humility with every single attitude. And this last attitude really makes us get down on our face before God and say, Lord, search me. Is there any single thing inside of my life right now, any attitude, anything that I have done, any sin that is hindering my walk and my fellowship with you? If there is, show it to me so I can confess it and get it out of the way. That should be our heartbeat. Whenever we're praying, you know, Ken Hemphill writes, and I like this, he says, confession is not a sweeping apology that makes us feel better on the outside while making no impact on our hearts. We must be specific as we pray this prayer throughout the day, personalizing the prayer by allowing the Holy Spirit to bring areas of sinfulness to mind that are hindering our fellowship with God. When we are specific, God overflows our sadness and brokenness with his overwhelming joy. Anything less than full disclosure always brings less than full release. So, ladies and gentlemen, this has to be a driving attitude of our prayer life. It has to be an attitude of my own personal prayer life. I've got to have a holy desire pursuing holiness before God. I don't want to fall into the trap of just offering up some blanket, forgive me of all my sins right before I fall asleep at night. 
Have you ever thought about that, by the way? Oftentimes, that's what we do. At the end of the day, we lay our head down on the pillow like, oh, Lord, forgive me of all my sins today. The problem is, if you sinned at 8 o'clock that morning and you didn't confess that sin until midnight that night, you went the entire day out of fellowship with God. And there's no harmony, there's no peace, there's no purpose. So if you or I sin at 8 o'clock in the morning, either by thought, word, or deed, what should we do the moment we sin? We should confess it before God so that our fellowship with Him will continue to go unhindered. And the reason there are so many miserable, are y'all listening? Merry Christmas. <laughs> reason there are so many miserable Christians in church is because they're walking with a hindered fellowship with God, holding on to sin and not giving it all over to the Lord. And that's why so many churches are dead. That's why so many churches are not making impact in their community with the gospel. Listen to the preacher. The tighter I hold on to sin in my life, the less I care about letting go of the gospel in my world. But as soon as I let go of sin and embrace Christ and his desire and purpose for my life, all of a sudden I'm concerned about growing spiritually, concerned about my family, growing spiritually, concerned about the church, concerned about the gospel getting out. If there's no concern in your life, sin has messed you up. We pursue purity. And listen, not at the end of the day, it's like, forgive me of all my sins. There's no passion in that prayer. There's no genuine desire for purity in a prayer like that. And I just jotted a couple of things down as I was studying that helped me personally. These are for me, so I'll just let y'all listen in. But I want to be walking uh, with God so close that when a sin pops up, I immediately bring it before the Lord in confession. I want to name the sin. And since the reality of how my sin breaks God's heart, I want my love to be so great for God that I choose nothing over my fellowship with Him. I have to pursue holiness. And that's been my prayer for this church, Concord. I want to encourage you in your prayer life to pursue holiness as well. That you come before God. Let nothing get in the way of your fellowship with God. Bob Belts in his book entitled Becoming a Man of Prayer states concerning this portion of the prayer how he prays. He says it like this, Lord, I'm a sinner constantly in need of your grace and forgiveness. Help transform the defects of my character. Peace instead of restlessness. Joy instead of irritability. Thankful contentment instead of discontentment. Help me overcome old nature issues such as lust and greed and rage and meanness and self-centeredness and harshness and insecurity and envy. See, what are we learning in our times alone with the Father? This is the time when we should be pursuing purity before God. Leaving, listen, listen to the preacher, leaving no sin unconfessed. It's a great challenge coming before God and saying, forgive us of our sins. Can I give you all the second one? There's a lot more in my heart, but I'm going to go to the second one. Here we go. You ready? Are you all ready? Y'all didn't like the first one, did you? I can tell. It doesn't get any easier. That's why I'll just say Merry Christmas every once in a while in the sermon, all right? So uh, look at me eyeball to eyeball. Merry Christmas. How do I know if I am 
having an attitude of holy desire. Secondly, I'm pursuing forgiveness toward men. Pursuing forgiveness toward men. Look at verse 4 again. And forgive us of our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So here Jesus reminds us in the model prayer that we have to be a person who reflects an attitude of forgiveness toward other people. That is, we cannot say, I will never forgive him for what he said. I will never forgive her for what she has done. Unforgiveness is a spiritual disease. One author says it like this, quote, Unforgiveness is the single most popular poison that the enemy uses against God's people. And it is one of the deadliest poisons a person can take spiritually. And you may have heard this statement, but it bears repeating. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping your enemy will die. And some of you have been done completely wrong. Let's face it, all of us have been done wrong at some point in time in our walks with the Lord. Somebody's come along and maybe done us wrong. You've been wronged at work by another employee. So even this morning, some of you are in here and you're like, you'll never believe how they threw me under the bus down there. I'll never, ever pay attention to him again. You've been wronged by a family member. You're like, I can't forgive my father. You know how he treats me, how he talks to me. Can't forgive my mom. Did you see what she said? You've been wronged by a church member, and you're like, I'll never forgive her. She wrongly accused me of saying something that I never said. You've been wronged by some friend, and you're like, they're no friend to me anymore. Nah, I shared some confidential information with them on an occasion, and they went out blabbing their face off to other people. There's no way in the world I'll ever be their friend again. Unforgiveness. Think about it. You most likely know someone who sinned against you in some form or fashion, be it emotional or physical, and according to you, they are in debt. That is, you're like, they've got to pay up for this one, man. They owe some stuff on this one. And your unforgiveness has driven you to consider all the ways that they should pay for their sins. So you sit around and daydream about how you can get even with them. You consider all the ways you'd like to rip them to shreds with your words. You wonder how you might be able to avenge yourself among them. And deep down, there's a hateful and spiteful attitude that's raging within. And you have stood your ground perhaps for years, and you're like, I will not forgive them. You know, some of you are going to be hanging out with the family members this week because it's Christmas and these are family members that you've had some kind of problem with over the years and you're like I'm not forgiving them man I don't even want to look in their face you got a massive problem if that's your attitude does not reflect the attitude of Christ and listen closely to have a spirit of unforgiveness toward another person is a direct contradiction to your Christian faith to have an unforgiving spirit minimizes the forgiveness of God which has been given to you in Jesus Christ. Unforgiveness defames the character and nature of God, misrepresenting his heart towards, towards humanity. Listen to the preacher. I need you to pay attention. Some of you, you're holding someone in debt. You are holding on to unforgiveness. But listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I are supposed to reflect the character and nature of Christ to a dark world. So if you're holding on to unforgiveness, you're like, I'll never forgive him. I'll never forgive her. You, my friend, are not reflecting the nature of Christ toward you. You're totally blowing it. And by the way, who are we to hold someone in debt to us when we have been set free from our sin debt with God? 
Paul the Apostle says in Ephesians 4 and 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Listen to what he says. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Are y'all listening? Say yes. Paul says in Colossians 3, 12 through 13, so as those who have been chosen of God, he's like, you're chosen people, you're holy and beloved. Put on a heart of compassion. Put on some kindness, some humility, some gentleness and patience. And then listen to this, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against you, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you should also forgive. So the foundational reason that I as a believer, Levi, I'm talking about me, are y'all listening? The foundational reason that I should go out and be an absolute forgiver of those who have done me wrong is because I have been forgiven by God. That's how we live. And listen, that's different. That is different than a lost world. Somebody who doesn't know the Lord Jesus personally, if they're done wrong, of course they'll be bitter. They don't have the Spirit of God working in their lives. Of course they're going to be hateful and spiteful and try to disown people and put them out of the family and put them out of their friendship circle, all of these kinds of things. They don't know the Lord. But the problem happens when you claim to know the Lord but act like you don't. That doesn't reflect the gospel. And whenever you have the opportunity to speak about the grace and forgiveness of God, people look at you like, are you kidding? You've experienced that? There's no way. Listen, we give out what we receive. And because we've received grace and because we receive forgiveness, we are giving it out to everybody. C.S. Lewis has observed, and I like this, he says, um, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely word until they have someone to forgive. <laughs> Who do you need to forgive? Here's the crazy thing. You think by being unforgiving that you have put someone in prison, but the reality is you have put yourself in prison. Your unforgiveness not only messes up your relationship with that one person, but it also affects all the other relationships you will have here on the earth horizontally. Because you are so unforgiving, you are like, I'll never trust anybody. So it affects every relationship. Some of you, listen, are y'all listening? And this is just free information, but some of you husbands need to offer up some forgiveness and grace to your wife. Some of you wives need to do the same with your husband. You've got this disharmony in your marriage relationship, and it's all because you're holding on to some bitterness, and every time you argue, you're pulling up stuff from the past and acting crazy. Stop it. If you're saved, act like it. And offer forgiveness to your wife, man. God forgave. And you didn't deserve any kind of forgiveness from God. But we receive it. So we ought to give it. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Are y'all all right? Who do you need to forgive? Man, that's crazy when you think about it. Let me give you the third uh, deal here. Oh, got to go quick. Here we go. Third way I know if I have a holy desire, and that is I'm praying for protection from evil. Look again, Luke 11, verse 4. Now, like the Bible, this is awesome. End of the model prayer, he is, he says it like this, and lead us not into temptation. This is a direct prayer that God would keep us from temptation. 
It's a prayer from protection from evil. Now, C.S. Lewis, I've already quoted him, but I grabbed a book off the shelf this week because I felt like it fit real well here. It's a book entitled The Screw Tape Letters. If you've never read it, y'all to read it. It's a pretty awesome book. The book puts forth a fictional demon whose name is Screwtape, who is writing to his demon understudy whose name is Wormwood. Wormwood has been assigned a certain place uh, and a certain person to demonize whom Screwtape repeatedly calls the patient. And the patient is actually the person that Wormwood is coming to demonize. And the book emphasizes the reality of the demonic world and how evil is poised to conquer you and I. Listen to Screwtape as he writes a letter to Wormwood. He says, my dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Do not indulge in the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. In the meantime, we must make the best of the situation. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. Wormwood lets Screwtape in on the fact that the patient has had some issues with his mother in the past and there is some conflict. Screwtape writes again, listen to what he says, my dear Wormwood, I'm very pleased by what you tell me about this man's relations with his mother, but you must press this to your advantage. The enemy, and this is a demon writing, so who's the enemy of the demon? It's God. So he says, the enemy, speaking of God, will be working from the center outwards, gradually bringing more and more of the patient's conduct under the new standard and may reach his behavior to the old lady at any moment. The old lady's his mama. <laughs> Word to the wise, don't call your mama old lady. Y'all all right? <laughs> then he says, you want to get in it first. Keep in close touch with our colleague, Glubose who is in charge of the mother, and build up between you in that house a good, settled habit of mutual annoyance, daily pinpricks. Now listen. The Bible says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Listen, the enemy has a strategic game plan for your life. So you and I have to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. The enemy wants to destroy our intimacy and fellowship with God as well as shatter our peace with other people. And I love this, um, golly, man, too much to preach. You and I, are y'all listening? Say yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up here like a present. It's like Merry Christmas. That just came to me. That was funny. Um, you agree, the Lord wants you and I to walk in harmony with him. Amen? And that's awesome, by the way. God's never looking at you going, man, I don't want fellowship with you. He always wants fellowship with you. So whenever you feel like you can't come to God with your sin and you're like, the Lord doesn't want anything to do with me, and man, I've got this sin, I've got this guilt, I've got this conscience, this weighing deeply, God is like, come on, man, I'm ready to give you grace. That's how he rolls. He's not looking at you going, I don't think so. No, he wants you to come, right? So God desires for our relationship with him to be unhindered, to walk in fellowship. But the enemy knows this. So what does the enemy do? The enemy seeks to attack our relationship with the Lord. So he will get in there and he will try to make you feel ways that are unbiblical about God. He'll try to get you to think things about God that aren't true. 
trying to mess up your intimacy with God. But then the enemy also knows that God wants you to live at peace with other people. So what does the enemy do? He attacks every single relationship you have with other people. So he's always working, always scheming, always figuring out some way to drive a wedge between husband and wife, drive a wedge between parents and uh, teenagers or kids, drive a wedge between boss and employee, drive a wedge between all of these relationships. He's after every single one, so he's always attacking. But here's the deal. The reason some of us are falling every single time into these sins in the context of relationships is because we are not praying about the war. We're not coming before God and saying, Lord, help me to stay clear before you and clean before others. But when we pray this way, lead us not into temptation, we're reminded of the fact that the Scripture teaches us in 2 Peter 1 and 3, that God, by his divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Are y'all looking at the preacher? This is awesome. Look at me. God has called you to live a godly life. You know what that means? It means to be in fellowship with God. It's what godliness is. It's what he's called you to. And here's the deal. Some of us look back and we're like, well, I won't ever be able to do that. Yes, you will. God said everything you need, I've already given it to you. Just live a godly life. Y'all out there? So it isn't that we lack the necessary resources to live godly. It's that we lack the discipline to do so and the desire. But when we discipline ourselves, God, by his grace, continues to pour into us everything needed to live a life of godliness. When we pray like this, we're reminded to put on the full armor of God so that we will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So the question would be, could you be losing the spiritual battle because you have not prayed about the war? Holy desire. Man, I want what I'm preaching this morning. And I'm praying that uh, this will be something God would put as a want in your heart as well. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word. And